If I were to ask you this morning, what was your favorite class in school growing up, what would it be? What was your favorite class in school? My favorite class in school was physical education, otherwise known as P.E. Now, ironically, I find that my two children, Brennan and Lawson's favorite class in school is P.E. as well. Probably because in P.E. we get to play, right? We get to get away from the books, get outside, go do something, and be active together. And I love to do that. I love to play dodgeball. I love to play basketball. I love to play kickball. I love to play all kinds of different um, games of tag. In fact, I remember as a kid, one of my fondest memories is when we would play a, a different kind of tag. Our teacher would get out a big parachute. Did you all ever have one of those? One of those big, massive parachutes. And all the children would gather around the parachute and grab a piece of it. And we would have at least one or two people go underneath that parachute and one person on top. And we would begin to shake that parachute as hard as we could so you could not see the people underneath it. We called it cat and mouse. And so the cat was on top and the mice were underneath and they would have to go and tag the children on the head. And then they would be out and we would switch off. That was PE for me. I loved that. It was fun. It was active. And it sure beat sitting in a chair for hours on end. But now I'm an adult. In fact, I'm a middle-aged adult. And exercise, honestly, is not as fun as it used to be. I enjoy playing sports. I like to play basketball. I like to play softball. But I find that I get sore and tired much easier than I used to when I was younger. I don't mind running on occasion or lifting weights, but it takes work and intentionality to ensure that I'm focusing on my physical health. And the truth is, is that exercise is vitally important for all of us, whether we walk or we run, ride a bicycle, maybe swim or play a sport, we all need exercise to be healthy. But maybe you're like me and know that you need to exercise but struggle at times to schedule it in or maybe lack the discipline that it takes to maintain it on a regular basis. I find that maintaining good physical health doesn't just come to us by doing nothing. Otherwise, we all be just fine, right? We have to work at it. It takes work. And a refusal to be active makes us unhealthy, which in turn makes it more difficult for us to be motivated to do something about it. Today, we do begin this new sermon series entitled Nine Flavors, One Fruit, which is focused on Galatians, the Apostle Paul's words to us in Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit. And it does make sense. We just celebrated Pentecost last Sunday. For those of you who were here and were able to ford the river and make it here, we talked about the beauty of the gift of the Spirit and how God came upon the disciples in power at this time called Pentecost and sent them out to be bold in sharing their faith. But in Galatians, Paul says that the Holy Spirit resides in our hearts. God has given us the gift of himself within us that we might live as God wills for us, which stands in opposition to what Paul calls the acts of the flesh. And so he lists out what the acts of the flesh are there in Galatians. And after doing so, he then shares their antithesis, the fruit of the Spirit. And he says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Did you catch that? Let me read that last part again. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Essentially what Paul is telling us to do is to exercise. To exercise. To keep in step with the Spirit. Or literally, to walk with the Spirit of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit resides within us, in our hearts, and fills us with what Paul calls this fruit. This fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of those things, they reside within us already. They are present in our lives. Most often we talk about having to learn patience or kindness or love. But the truth is, you already have that within you. The difference is, is that we have to walk with the Spirit. We have to activate their presence in our lives. We have to intentionally exercise each of these character traits in our lives, not on our own, but with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so today we begin with the first flavor of the Spirit, as Paul would say, the greatest of all of them, which is love. And I find that the word love in some ways has become all too common in the English language. We use it all the time, but it's often not used in the same context as we use it in Scripture. For instance, some people may say, I love ice cream or I love my job, or I love my children, or love you, mean it. We, generally, we understand that the way that we love our children isn't the same as loving our job, or loving ice cream, or loving others. Most often, we view love as a feeling, or an attitude, or an emotion that comes and goes For example, there are many people who will say, well, they've fallen in love with someone, or maybe even say that they've fallen out of love with them. Those are emotions. But the Bible doesn't depict love like that. In fact, it's easy for us to have a distorted view of love apart from what Scripture tells us love is. Even the music that we listen to, most of the music that we listen to is always centered on this thing called love. So we hear about it, we read about it, and we talk about it, and hopefully we live it. But what is our point of reference for love? Love must derive from something, just as hate also derives from something. John tells us plainly in Scripture this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is is love. John explains that God is love, and our knowledge of love comes directly from who God is. Now, theologian Karl Barth noted that God is always the subject of love, for only love, only God can be defined by what love is for us, okay? If God becomes the predicate For instance, if we were to say love is God, not God is love, love is God, it alters our understanding of who God is. Because we have an understanding of what love is, and whatever our understanding of what love is will now make us think that that is who God is. Does that make sense? If we understand that God is love, God is always the subject of what love is. 
We find it in and through God. Any other false view of love will give us a distorted view of who God is. So if God is love, how can we know this love, and what does this love look like? Well, John tells us this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, love is more than a feeling or an emotion. It's not something that we fall into or out of. Love is active and love is selfless. In fact, Scripture defines three primary understandings of love for us. The first comes from the Greek word phileo, which is understood as brotherly love. Many of you are familiar with the city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, right? Philadelphia is often referred to as the city of what? Brotherly love. It comes from this Greek word. This is the love that we have for one another, the love that we have for our friends. The second use of love comes from the Greek word eros, which speaks of an intimate love, The word erotic is derived from this word, which explains intimate love that is to be shared in the context of marriage. The third use of love comes from the Greek word agape, which speaks of the love of God. And that love is an unconditional love. This love runs countercultural to the way we typically love one another. Our love is always typically conditional. If you love me, I love you. But if you hate me, I can refuse to love you. I can withhold that love from you. Our love, you see, has a tendency to waver based on our circumstances, but God's love is constant and is not dependent upon our love of him. Isn't that what John said in the passage? Let me read that to you again. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. That's love. When Paul speaks of love as a flavor of the fruit of the Spirit, he's talking about this agape love. When John speaks of love in reference to God and of one another, he is speaking about this agape love. And our passage from 1 Corinthians 13 today, which is often referred to as the love chapter, is also speaking about, guess what? And agape love. Now we're used to hearing this passage in the context of weddings, right? And it's not inappropriate to use this passage of Scripture for weddings, but I have to tell you that's certainly not what Paul originally had in mind when he wrote his letter to the church there in Corinth. You see, the issue of their day at that particular time was that the church was struggling to live out the faith in the manner and in the spirit that it was intended to be. They abused their freedom. They refused to share with one another. They looked down upon their fellow parishioners' spiritual gifts while elevating their own. They sought personal recognition and fought over leadership positions to control the decisions of the church. Needless to say, the church in Corinth was a mess, and yet Paul still called them the church. The church in Corinth had existed today in the Presbyterian denomination. The commission on ministry would have been all over them trying to set them straight. They were a mess. 
But Paul established this church. He was a church planner, and he loved that church, and so he wants them to get it right. And so he says to them, and yet I will show you a more excellent way. He wants them to understand what matters more than anything. They have focused their attention on themselves, and they have become self-serving, and it's divided them. And they have become so self-serving that it's preventing them from living out their faith. And so he addresses the real issues by saying to them, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, if I have a faith that can move mountains, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, everyone in the church is focused on what they have done or what they are doing for the Lord Speaking in tongues, like we talked about last week uh, on Pentecost, there's two ways of understanding that. There's the speaking in the tongues of men, which is different languages, or speaking in the tongues of angels, which is an intimate conversation with God. Those are two spiritual gifts that God provides for the church. Most Presbyterians do not exhibit them. Nonetheless, they are spiritual gifts, okay? But in the church, particularly in Corinth, The gift of tongues was considered to be the greatest of all of the gifts. Got it? If you could speak in tongues, you were like the holy one. If you couldn't speak in tongues, you were not quite as holy. It's kind of like if we're Christians together and I have the gift of speaking in tongues, it's like I have a fire hose and I am spraying like crazy, and you have a water pistol if you do not have this gift. Got it? In addition to that, exhibiting a great faith mimicked the prophets of old. That was kind of important. Giving away all of one's possessions to the poor was the greatest sacrifice that one could give. But Paul uses this word, but. There's always the but. He says, I can have and do all these things, but if I do not have love, I'm only a clanging symbol. I'm nothing. And I gain nothing. Paul's point is this. What is motivating these efforts? Is it about me? Or is it about God? In other words, a life devoid of God's love is worthless. It's self-motivated. It's self-focused. But then he has to explain what love is. And love isn't. He says love is patient kind. It always protects and always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. It's not envious or boastful. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking or easily angered. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs, nor does it delight in evil. Instead, it rejoices in the truth. Love never fails. Paul defines love as it is rooted in the character of the God the Corinthians worship, as it is rooted in the same God that we worship and serve too. And what Paul is doing, he's redirecting them from the focus of self back to God. If God is love and God claims you as his own, then you are called to love as God loves you. Jesus himself told his disciples this. He said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Truthfully, 
This really isn't a new command that Jesus gives. It's rooted in the Old Testament. and The demand to love your neighbor as yourself. But what's new about this love is that the love that Jesus calls us is rooted and modeled after his love for us. An agape love, not a phileo love, not an eros love, an agape love, an unconditional love. And in unconditionally loving one another, others will know that we belong to God, to Christ. And so Paul's point is pretty simple. It's not about the spiritual gifts that you have received that makes you holier than someone else. God's love is what puts everything in its proper context. We are called to love one another, and the love that has claimed us in Jesus Christ, that governs all the gifts of the Spirit. Love is the proper motivation for all that we do, and it calls us to use our gifts together in the church as the body of Christ to build up the body of Christ for God's glory and not for our own. For God's love is unconditional, and it's meant to be exercised by his disciples. Prophecies will cease. Tongues will be silenced. Knowledge will pass away, but love will never fade. But you and I know that this love is easier said than done. We know that just because we're a part of the church and the body of Christ, that we're not perfect, that really we're sinful people. And we have a tendency in the church sometimes to upset one another or to get on each other's nerves. We're a family of faith. You have families. Surely you guys get on your own nerves all the time and get irritated with one another. That's what we do in our own families. Why would we expect anything different in the church? It's about what we do with that, right? It's about how we live that out. I find that there's all kinds of people in the church. There are know-it-alls and there are do-it-alls. There are some who refuse to change or do something new. Some immediately who label a new idea as impossible or say it can never be done or we've never done that before. Some are passive-aggressive while others are just blunt and in your face. Some refuse to help or engage in anything. Some people are intentional and sometimes unintentional in what they say that can offend someone else. Some are super sensitive and there are others who are thick-skinned But the church has never been perfect. And Paul says it will not be perfect until that day in which we see God face to face. But until that day, Paul says that we're called to love one another as God loves us. And he reminds us of this in Romans saying, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love for us is an unwavering commitment to bring reconciliation between us and between God. This means that we are called as a people who seek reconciliation with one another. You see, it's much easier to get mad at someone and refuse to speak with them. It's easier to say that you have forgiven them while secretly holding a tally of wrongs, and when they wrong you again, throwing that back in their face to remind them that you really didn't forgive them in the first place. It's easier for us to lose our patience with others, lashing out in anger without a filter. It's easy to gossip about someone who's wronged you rather than speaking directly to them. 
God's love must be exercised for reconciliation to exist. We cannot expect for healing to take place in our broken relationships without practicing this love with those that we're at odds with. And loving like Christ doesn't mean that we're called to be doormats, to be walked all over. That's not what it's about. Sometimes you and I are called to speak the truth in love because that's the loving way of bringing back restoration and reconciliation. Jesus did this all the time. He spoke the truth in love to all kinds of people. And some of them responded favorably and recognized their need for Jesus. And they asked for forgiveness. And they began to follow and walk in his ways. And others were offended by what he said, knowing that it was true, but failing to acknowledge it. And they ran away from him. I have learned in the church, we cannot control what other people do, but we can control how we respond. And I've also found that being right is not always what's most important. What's most important is love and reconciliation. But they have to be exercised. We have to do it. You know, I'm not a big runner, but in fact, for me, running a 5K race is quite intimidating. If you ask me to go run in a race tomorrow, I'd laugh at you and say, no, that's not going to happen because I will die before I get to the finish line. But I have learned in my life that running a 5K race is not kind of where you start. <laughs> that's not how you really are supposed to do it. You're supposed to work your way up to that. Maybe you start with a half mile and get comfortable in running that and building your endurance there, and then maybe stretch it to a mile, and then maybe two, and then you get to that 3.1, right? That's the way to do it, is to set goals for yourself that you can achieve. And I find that if you exercise your muscles, they will build capacity to do the things that you couldn't do from the start, but it requires your intentionality in pushing yourself just a little bit. And when it comes to having an agape love, we already have it because the fruit of the Spirit is present in our lives. The Spirit of God resides within us, but this fruit isn't to be hoarded for ourselves. This love is meant to be shared with others. That's why we have to exercise it together. That's why Paul says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So today, church, I challenge you to think about how your actions and your relationships in the church or even outside the church either express or fail to express an agape love to others. How are you living out an unconditional love? Where are you struggling in that? And if you recognize that you've got some work to do, then my prayer is that you would allow yourself to be guided by the Holy Spirit, to show your love to someone that you have withheld it from, or who you know needs to receive it. It could be your spouse. It could be someone that you haven't been speaking with for whatever reason. It could be someone who isn't as connected in the life of the congregation as they should be. Or it could be someone completely outside of the church altogether. According to Jesus, our love is what identifies us as his disciples. That's the fruit. And often he says, by their fruit you will know them. Our love. 
And I find that it would really be a shame to ignore this and choose to blend in with the rest of the world because I find that we're not called to be chameleons. We've been called to be Christians, Christ ones, to love as Christ loves us. So John reminds us, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Paul says it like this, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Friends, let us love one another as Christ has loved us. May we do so this day and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.